Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Not such a happy Halloween on the west side last night, Garfield Park where as many as 14 people were shot, including kids as young as three years old. Yeah, three-year-old, an eight-year-old, and they believe a 10-year-old. Here's uh, the 911 dispatch with cops responding to the scene, calling in to describe the people that they've uh, attended to and gotten an ambulance, 10 ambulances dispatched. Just take a listen. It's like a, a roll call for the wounded. One two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six da turnkey dot pro text line. They uh, identified a description of the shooters. This uh, offending uh, vehicle information uh, looks like a black four door sedan, possibly an Audi uh, that had.
April, and then after the shooting, it went southbound on California from Colton. So, uh, a car rolls up, uh, and there's apparently two shooters, and they just indiscriminately open fire on anybody in the area. Sickening. That- and apparently they were there. The group was there, <clears throat> ranging, again, in ages from the youngest as well, young as three to people in their 40s and 50s. They were there for a vigil. Um, sell, you know, remembering the life of somebody else who was lost to violence, and they had a balloon release, and somebody so, pulls up. It's a it's a popular corner, but still, they were having this vigil, and somebody just comes up and sprays the whole crowd. Right, sounds gang related. Yeah. You know, like you see these shootings at uh, funerals for gang members when the rival gang takes the opportunity for, you know, Godfather style to. Uh, uh, attack their rival gang indiscriminately, and after they identify the uh, a description of the car and what occurred, uh, just get back to a roll call of the wounded. Loud and three one, female one, eleven years old, shot in the left leg. All right, female one, that's on the left leg, ten four. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as we approach uh, six hundred fifty murders and. Uh, we're well over 3,000 shootings in Chicago this year. I know we're just a nerd to it, and I know how many times we've had this discussion on this show. And we'll keep having it. I, I don't know what else you can do if you don't have people that want to get serious about civilization. And, uh, again, um, that starts on Tuesday, and it continues next year into that mayor's race, doesn't it? That's yeah, and if we don't vote Pritzker out, it's going to be worse come January first. And I got to tell you, your uh, the the super pack that you have with Joe Rogan's ad really hits home to a lot of guys. I had a friend tell me that he was at a bar on Sunday and said when that ad came on, everybody shut their mouths, they all watched, and they were like, "That's what's going to happen." Yes. That's that's true. That's not bullshit. That's oh, oh, bull jive. That's uh, can you? I hope you got that. Uh, I was just repeating what the people were saying. Um, and that that's we got to get them out of office. Yeah, Illinois so is good. fracked unless people decide to unfrack it. Pretty simple proposition that uh, Joe Rogan helped us frame, which we appreciate. Um, another story. We just try to tell stories of the victims too, not just the mass shootings. Uh, that occur of the mainly nameless, regardless of their age, a three-year-old, 11-year-old, 16-year-old shot. Okay. Friends and family and colleagues of Carlos Rivera will lay him to rest this morning. More than a week after someone shot him to death as he investigated a disturbance in the second-floor unit of his Northside 2 flat. Carlos Rivera, on Sunday, October 23rd, heard a commotion coming from upstairs neighbors in the 4300 block of North Whipple. When he uh, went to investigate, someone shot him in the face as he stepped in the hallway. Uh, The um, people responding to his death, this was a guy who, uh, you know, was a working man. And then in his off time, he'd he'd, uh, umpire, according to friends and neighbors, he'd umpire something like 300 games a summer, a spring and summer. So we were talking about uh, the presence of adult males and why, for example, we were talking about the context of this uh, hand-wringing over the fact there's no U.S.-born black males on the two World Series teams, the Astros and the Phillies, and why you don't have as many 
young black uh young black man going into baseball as compared to other sports and one of the things you need for little league is you need male adults to participate as coaches as umpires so uh here's a guy who's got kids of his own who then uh, you know, a little bit of a side hustle, but I'm sure he's doing it not for the not money. Not for the money. We don't do it for money. <laughs> but for just, you know, he obviously was a huge baseball fan, and this was his way of giving back. Shot in the face because he went upstairs to to investigate a disturbance where he lives. I, you know, I, I, I just don't know how to punctuate this any better than our friend Jim Glasgow did. Democrat, just keep reminding people. I know they don't like it. The Democrats don't like to hear this. I know they don't like to hear 100 of 102 county uh, state prosecutors opposed to this Pritzker purge law, including two dozen Democrats. I know they don't. They turn away their eyes when they see my commercials that just memorialize what Democrat prosecutors around the state have said about this. Uh, Jim Glasgow uh, said uh, the other day, uh, and I think he's going to be on um, – Fox News to talk more about this, too, which is fantastic. He said quite simply, and he's offered some pretty good summations on this Pritzker Purge law. Have you ever heard of any government passing a law to release everyone in their jails? No one has ever done that before, and no one would ever think to do that. Well, we know someone who would think to do that because he did it. We know someone who would think to do that. I, I, you know, at some point, I suppose you run out of words, and then I guess we're going to see what people do a week from today, as and what they've been doing in the weeks leading up to a week from today. Fourteen shot in Garfield Park. Uh, at least, you know, one of the reports critically. Hopefully, everyone survives. It sounded like many didn't have life-threatening injuries, thankfully. But we don't know yet. A lot of grazed ones. And one lady even went into the hospital last night. She, you know, around midnight, <clears throat> 32-year-old, she had a severe wound to the leg from that shooting, too. Carlos Rivera laid to rest today. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, you, you, you know, cover your eyes, cover your ears, see no evil, hear no evil. I know that's what a lot of people in Chicago are wanted to do, will continue to do, probably, until it affects them. And guess what? If this purge law goes into effect, then the odds of it affecting you in a way that you never could have imagined, like the family of Carlos Rivera, like the family of Danny Golden, like the family of all the kids who've been murdered on the streets of Chicago just this past summer, much less in the the last three years of the reign of Pritzker and Lightfoot, the chances of it affecting you in a horrific forever life-altering way increased dramatically yeah it's not and if you can, it's when and you can uh, well it's it, it may not be it's not it's not inexorable oh, I went from knowing nobody to knowing three people who got carjacked well knowing but it's it's not inexorable but the point is this why would you support a move in that direction where you know if not you than somebody other, someone else similarly situated. It will happen. It's happening every single day. And you want to be on that side because what? Because you don't like Republicans? Is that a proportion? Ex- no, because they think we're extremists. Is that a proportional response? Is that a proportional response? 
you consider your people who behave like that. You consider yourself a serious person. You consider yourself an adult. You consider yourself a good person doing good things, trying to do right by others. Well, you can't if you take that position. I'm sorry. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Larry Elder, Brandon Tatum, Alex Berenson, and many more at Freedom Summit Chicago. Tickets available at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So we've got a new timeline of the events that led up to the attack on Paul Pelosi. This was uh, revealed yesterday by DOJ. So follow this storyline. Okay. And tell me how much you believe it, frankly. Yeah, three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment because now that the DOJ is taken over, you know, there's no chance that he'll get bailed out and that anybody will be able to talk to him to really get his side of the story. I know he gave a statement to the FBI. But who trusts the FBI these days? Well, that's a question. He uh, broke into the Pelosi mansion through a glass door using a hammer he brought with him. Broke into. But how? The glass is on the outside. When you break into something, it normally shatters forward, and you can see the bent glass bending out instead of bending in. But, okay, go on. Sorry. Went upstairs to find Pelosi in his bedroom asleep, demanded he wake up, saying he had come for his wife. According to the DOJ, Pelosi responded that she was not present. Pelosi asked now. Uh, Pelosi asked how they could resolve the situation and what the what the assailant wanted to do. The assailant said he wanted to tie Pelosi up so he could go to sleep. He was tired from having had to carry a backpack to the Pelosi residence. Then he said, then he recounted taking out two twist ties from his pocket so he could restrain Pelosi. Pelosi moved toward another part of the house, but he was stopped by the assailant. And together they went back into the bedroom. Uh huh. The two men conversed. Pelosi went to the bathroom where he was able to sequently call the police. Some talking code. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, at that point. 
the assailant realized what was happening. In his interview, he said he, quote, felt like Pelosi's actions compelled him to respond. He remembered thinking there was no way the police were going to forget about the phone call. Uh-huh. But he also said he did not leave after Pelosi's call to 911 because, much like the American founding fathers with the British, he was fighting against tyranny without the option of surrender. Okay. Uh, sounds um, like... By the time the police yes, arrived... Yes, yes. Who opened the door? Who opened the door for the police? Pelosi and the assailant uh, were downstairs. Pelosi opened the door. Pelosi grabbed on to the oh. assailant's hammer, which was in his hand. At this point in the interview... The assailant repeated he did not plan to surrender and that he would go through Pelosi, whatever that means. Pelosi and the assailant were both holding a hammer with one hand and a pape. Uh, well, these, both holding a hammer with one hand. The assailant had his other hand holding onto Pelosi's forearm. Pelosi greeted the officers. This is all quoting from DOJ. The officers asked them what was going on. The assailant responded, everything was good. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, officers then asked Pelosi and DePape to drop, and uh, the assailant, sorry, I keep saying his name, to drop the hammer. The assailant pulled the hammer from Pelosi's hand at that point, swung it, striking Pelosi in the head. Officers immediately went inside, were able to restrain the assailant. Pelosi appeared to be unconscious on the ground. And the charging documents uh, suggest that the assailant was targeting Pelosi Nancy, for being the leader of the pack of lies told by a Democratic Party, he wanted to break her kneecaps to show her to show that her actions had consequences. Neighbors, uh, uh, neighbors of this uh, assailant, who, by the way, mentally ill, homeless, drug addict. He's here illegally. He was born in British Columbia. Oversta- yeah. He overstayed his visa, but California's a sanctuary state, Dan. So, you know, you reap what you sow. Uh, neighbors say not a MAGA supporter, just crazy. He is a hemp jewelry maker and a nudist. And I want to know if he took off his pants while he was inside the house or if he just came there in his underwear. Anything strange about him or anything that stood out? There's something strange about the whole household. <laughs> the entire household is very, very strange. How about him? Um, uh, he is birds of a feather with uh, akin to them. So they are just, you know, nudist drug abusers, and that's who gravitates toward them. Now, is that person talking about the Pelosi's or no. about the assailant? That person, Dan, is oh, talking okay. about the assailant because he lives in a school bus. In this compound in Berkeley where, you know, they have BLM posters up and LGBTQ posters up outside the compound. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. So he's a little bit crazy. Well, I mean, if the statement as uh, recounted by DOJ, the statements are accurate, then I think that comes across pretty clearly. As Michael Schellenberger tweeted out the other day, we mentioned yesterday, you know, it sounds like somebody who is... Um, has mental issues as a result of drug-induced psychoses because he's yeah. reportedly a heavy drug user as well. But he's not a MAGA supporter, so stop with that nonsense right now. And I, I know we have the dispatch tape, but I want to hear the 911 call. And I want to see the body camera footage from the police officers. Also, there's surveillance cameras protecting the perimeter of the home. Where's that video? I mean, if the left is so, oh, you and your conspiracy theories, 
show us the video or give us something that can debunk it. Because I don't trust the FBI. And as soon as the FBI got involved, that's a great way to keep the accused far away from the media. Well, it's a bizarre story, but he's sort of a crazy guy, it sounds like. So I guess it's possible, but, you know, it it certainly doesn't – I don't know why they're – he wants to restrain him, but he doesn't. They're moving around. He go. He allows him to go to the bathroom and make a call. Then they're they're sauntering downstairs when the police arrive. I, 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 I know. And he, but he was a real threat to, um, he, he was a real threat to, to uh, seize our democracy or something. Uh, you know. Again, this is, of course, not condoning violence for political reasons or God, violence God, for no. any reason uh, other than self-defense, period. And, yeah, we had to deal with and dispatch all of the silliness and the pearl clutching uh, and the uh, Sunday talk show hosts on their fainting couches about this, the suggestion that all the ads that invoke Nancy Pelosi need to be taken down because they've made her a target and this and that when this is really pedestrian stuff when it comes to politics and long-standing pedestrian stuff when it comes to politics. Uh, And, of course, the double standard of the left when it comes to uh, trying to ascribe a political motive to a deranged individual to smear all of those who share one or two of his several varied and conflicted views, unlike... Unlike what we did, just to provide you a contrast, and many others on the right did, when you had the Bernie Sanders supporter shoot up the softball practice and try and, and almost oh, assassinate yeah. Steve Scalise. Nobody said that's – nobody on the right was saying, oh, that's indicative of – that's representative of all Bernie Sanders supporters. But, of course, the left is not bounded by their own hypocrisy. That's part of their privilege as the vanguard party, I understand. I also want Pelosi's burglar alarm, uh, burglar alarm records because that'll reveal the hours that Pelosi kept while his wife was in D.C. Well, here's I, the thi- I, here's the thing too: or drugs I mean, or money involved. There's just so many questions. Here's the thing: once upon a time, when reporters were interested in the who, what, where, when, why, you would ask these questions to get the facts, to pull everything together, to make sure the official story checks out, to answer legitimate questions that are unanswered, beginning with the break-in or break-out question based on the, you know, the glass pattern. I mean, I'm not, you know, a criminal. Or, or I I'm am. Not, I, I, you know, I'm not like an evidence <laughs> tech here, but, well, but I mean. I've been too many crime scenes. Are you kidding me? Come on. Well, well, it, Unless he got in through a different well, door. I, I just, well, you have a $6 saying. million dollar mansion. What the heck is wrong with you? Your wife is third in line to the president. How do you not have your home alarm system on? Well, what? well, 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 there's that. There's also, as I mentioned yesterday, when me and a buddy of mine were in San Francisco a couple of years ago, we went up to Pacific Heights to see the Pelosi compound. And as I said, there was yeah. a va- I don't think anybody was home, but there, and it's not like we knocked on the door, tried to break in. Yeah, but, uh, a hammer. But, I know you. But there was but there Zip was a van us. outside the door. I mean, out, outside the home that clearly was, uh, you know, security of some sort. I just find it difficult to believe that there was no security presence uh, around the home in that neighborhood. Yeah, the alarm's not on. The, uh, the the whole thing just raises a lot of questions. But I know if you ask any questions that are rational, 
then you're just a conspiracy theorist, according to the D.C. press corps. That's not interested in reporting. They're interested in political activism and trying to use this as a 11th hour play to rescue the few Democrats that they can, you know, well, to rescue as many Democrats who are going away as they possibly can. So, you know, I, I, you know, but that's 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 where things are at. That's where things are at with the press. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. Mean, meanwhile, just something else. Uh, just two two points. One is something else. Meanwhile, um, stories like this get subordinated. California dad, twenty two year old daughter stabbed to death by homeless man. Yeah. Was the, Ken uh, Evans and McKenna Evans were spending time together around noon Thursday tinkering on their sedan in Palmdale, just north of L.A., when a man attacked them for no apparent reason and murdered them both. Oh, God. I mean, this, how is, many, this is rampant in L.A. Well, it is, which is why that mayor's race is a statistical dead heat now in a city that's God. three to four to one dem to Republican. So uh, that's what normal people are focused on because of the homelessness and violent crime problem that afflicts these identitarian socialist run cities and then radiates out from the cities to the suburbs. So that's also subordinated to all of this Nancy Pelosi political stuff. The other thing, just as a sort of a fun thought exercise to apply this to Illinois. So if this, um, Illegal alien uh, who is charged with kidnapping and assault. If those were state level charges. And that occurred in Illinois after Jan one, number one, local cops couldn't work with federal law enforcement because like California, Illinois is a sanctuary state. Number two. Those are non-detainable offenses under Pritzker's purge law. Dear. So, So he would walk. He would walk. He, oh, that's the, right. Kidnapping. Yeah. The, right. the threshold, the threshold indicates it's more likely than not he could walk for all those people rushing with their knee jerk talking point that they've heard from Jelly Belly that, oh, no, no, you can ask a judge to detain him. Yes, you can. And yes, maybe in this case, that's possible. Who knows what a judge will do? These judges don't know what they'll do because they're as confused about this law as everybody else. I'm talking about Illinois and Pritzker's purge law. But but it's important to not look at this in a single cases, to look at this in the entire caseload that prosecutors, particularly in uh, big communities, big counties, the entire caseload they have. So the presumption is for release, non-detainable offense. You would have to prove that the individual presents a specific threat to a specific individual. Maybe you could convince a judge that this individual, if he was let out, poses a specific threat to Nancy Pelosi. Or Paul Pelosi. But, uh, you know, if I'm as a defense attorney, I say, well, first of all, he needs, uh, you know, medical treatment. He doesn't need mental health treatment. He doesn't need to be in prison. And number two, he doesn't pose any threat. Uh, she has this Secret Service detail. After what happened, you know, he's going to have a Secret Service detail. I thought he did. Uh, that extends beyond, you know, that is, well, the Secret Service detail will extend beyond the family to him. And I'm sure they'll have somebody on site at the home and so on and so forth. Maybe I'll keep the burglar alarm on next time. But regardless, um, 
that's the d- dynamic at play. Now, put that in the context of a prosecutor's office, say, in one of the Collar counties in Illinois, having to deal with hundreds of these cases. Hundreds of these cases where the presumption is for release and the threshold is exceedingly high, like the highest in the nation to detain someone. That's an illustration of Illinois. And that's not me saying it, although it is me saying it because I've read the law, too. And that's what it says. Uh, that's, but that's professional prosecutors who do this on a daily basis. You can listen to the politicians' talking points, or you can listen to real-world practitioners who will tell you what the implications are. Your choice. And your buddy, Eric Reinhardt from uh, Lake County, has a new ad out. Yeah, which is great. Which is, I'm glad he does. I'm glad he does wise. because the fact that uh, Pritzker had to enlist Al Reinhardt from Lake County – the uh, short, fat, white Kim Fox, one of the two Dem socialist decarceration, defund the police prosecutors in the state, two out of 102. The fact that he had to enlist him to do a commercial. Uh, 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 yeah, this uh, salacious and fallacious Safety Act ad in the 11th hour tells you that they're worried, tells you that it's having an impact as well it should. Now we're having the conversation we want to have. Now we're dictating the terms of debate and what's important to us. Finally, good. He's so angry, too, in that ad. It's so, ugh. Bob Buffalo Grove. Uh, good morning, Amy and Dan. Always uh, appreciate talking to you, and uh, thank you for your excellent comments on this. Questions, questions, questions. I've got one that I heard last night. Didn't they play the 9-11 tape when um, Pelosi called in and identified him as a David? Yet the police department in San Francisco said Pelosi didn't know the uh, perpetrator. I'm confused. Well, it was um, the dispatch tape, the 911 call. They did not. But if he was hiding in a bathroom, why did he have to speak in code? But, I mean, I don't know. Well, the dispatch has Pelosi characterizing him as a friend and the official line is that was his way of speaking in code to alert police. Right, because the but he was in the bathroom, so why did he have to talk in code in the first place? He right. could have been whispering like, Hey, an intruder's in my house instead of, uh, my friend's here to see my wife. What? And and yeah. again, um he wants to tie him up because he's tired and he wants to go to sleep, but then he lets him Go off to the bathroom by himself. And then lets him go down. And then he discovers him making the call after that. I mean, maybe that's how it went down. As I said, this individual is clearly erratic at best. So maybe that's how it went down. But you're not allowed to ask questions and try to solicit more context. Hmm. And when did Mr. Pelosi go to bed? What did he do that night? Chris Carey. Where was he? Hey, good morning, guys. You know, uh, let's just play along and assume that um, this guy, this lunatic, is a MAGA supporter on the right. And I've heard many talking heads, even Biden himself suggested that all the vitriol coming from the right is what uh, pushed this guy to do this. Well, let's put the shoe on the other foot. Maybe being called a neo-fascist, a Nazi, uh, uh, deplorable, all these names coming from the left push this guy over the edge. 
maybe he's getting tired of being classified as that, and that pushed him over the edge. They, they don't like to play along. They don't like to use both sides. They just it's only only coming from the right. Yeah, right. If if you want to come up with that, thanks for the call. I want to come up with that silly uh, assertion, then we can you know, can work both ways, right? That's a fair point. Um, just a related story. Yeah. The uh, final debate between uh, Stacey Abrams, who I think the Bears are going to look at to replace Roquan Smith. Okay, stop. Uh, The final debate between her and Brian Kemp, they had a similar discussion to what we're having here. Listen to how this went down, talking about violent crime. Men and women in law enforcement know who is going to be with them, and that's why we have the endorsement of 107 sheriffs around the state. I'm not a member of the good old boys club, so no, I don't have 107 sheriffs who want to be able to take black people off the streets, who want to be able to go without accountability. <gasps> she, she, she said out loud what the left's position is. So 107 sheriffs, wow. I think there's 159 counties in Georgia. That's a lot of counties. But anyway... 107 sheriffs and all 107 sheriffs. If you endorse Brian Kemp, then you want to take black people off the streets indiscriminately without accountability. That's what she believes about 107 sheriffs in Georgia. Okay, Uh, what does Pritzker believe about 100 out of 102 county prosecutors and all the county sheriffs and all the other law enforcement professionals that oppose his purge law? He believes they're fear mongers and liars. That's that's explicitly what he said verbatim what he said when he signed the legislation in February of 2021. Mm -hmm. That's That's the playbook. But when he said that comment, though, Dan, reporters shut their mouths. Nobody questioned it. The only people that asked question was me, Mary and Ahern. Everybody else, they didn't ask one thing about it. How do you sit through a two and a half hour press conference and not have one question to ask? Not one. But he scared everybody by saying you're, you're fear mongers. John and Mattoon. Hi. Uh, I cannot help to notice the similarities to what the Democratic Party is today to the movie of the Gangs of New York. Seems like the same playbook, uh, oppressive uh, voting problems. Um, I, it, it just seems very similar. Thanks for the call, John. Richard, South Suburbs. Hey, Dan and Amy. Um, there was a song years ago called The Leader of the Pack. And that's what, you know, the guy that uh, broke into Pelosi's house was the leader of the pack. That's why they call him the leader of the pack. Okay. Thanks for the call, Richard. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Just a postscript on our conversation about Paul Pelosi. Yeah. Uh, How did this tweet age? Christine Pelosi, daughter of Nancy, Mm -hmm. who is a political strategist. Of course she is. On the occasion in March of 2020, when this was, I think, after Rand Paul tested positive for COVID, Rand Paul's neighbor was right. (gasps) 
Christine Pelosi tweeted. Remember that? Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Yeah. She endorsed, she seemed to endorse felony assault against a sitting U.S. senator. So I, I guess, I, I guess the new Marxists deplore politically inspired violence, except when they don't. And also to another point. What, ta- oh. tackled Rand Paul, five broken ribs, removal of part of his lung damaged from the incident. He was only sentenced to 30 days behind bars. What? Where, 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 where was the, the DOJ heck? swooping in? Right. Why didn't the DOJ investigate that? I mean, this but with the DOJ's investigation, folks, and I, I know media is not asking questions, but now they cannot ask any questions. There is absolutely no access to this suspect to find out what happened. And Justin and I were talking during the break. Why didn't if he was attacking the speaker of the House's husband, why didn't they shoot the guy or taser him or well, something? He, 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 the attack didn't occur until the police were on scene according to the official Great. story, and the, he, he grabbed the hammer, or they were both holding the hammer. First we thought it was two hammers. Right. Now they're both holding the hammer. They, each has one hand on the hammer. They're told to drop it. According to DOJ, the assailant pulls it away from Paul Pelosi and brains him in the head. Then they tackled him and took the hammer. There's a, you, don't, you, don't, so you don't roll up there and open fire because well, you see two guys holding a hammer. It's just bizarre. I mean... It's, I, I want to see the police body cam video so badly. Speaking, if they, if they even had what weapons drawn or a taser drawn or whatever. Speaking of uh, journalism, here's a fun story. At yes. least it's going to be fun for me. Uh, this is from Prairie State Wire, one of the papers that uh, I'm affiliated with that Pritzker and the media decry as fake news and believe it shouldn't be allowed to be published. And, you know. Even like though, the fourth estate is wont to do, silence dissent. Even though you've been around for what, twelve years or seven, seven years? or yeah. seven, eight years, and, and they've they've used your stories to on their air. I hope they use this one. Okay, let's see. Well, I'll decide. I'll play assignment editor. Okay, what do you got? We uh, did a little analysis of uh, all of our colleagues in the press corps. I'm sure they'll like that characterization. Analysis that looked at the Illinois State Board of Elections is public voter file. Looked at uh, about 423 journalists and news media staff working across Illinois. Identified 225 who have voted in a primary election, effectively declaring a political party. Of the 225, 192, about 85%, 192 had voted in only or a majority of Democrat primaries versus 26, a majority of Republican primaries, seven an equal number of them 
192 to 26. In Chicago, oh boy, 114 journalists who yeah. live in the city, 107 voted Democrat. 107 of 114. <laughs> Six uh, Republicans, wait. 107 to six, How, and one was evenly split. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. The uh, Better Government Association that's uh, headed up by that David Greasing, who we had on the show after he uh, wrote a Tribune op-ed, you know, excoriating me, calling me names, so forth. Fine. It's fun to have him on the show. I'm glad he came on. Yeah, I heard it was a great interview. Um, yeah, I think he didn't anticipate what he was in for, but okay. All 10 staff members of the BGA Democrats, he's really? a Democrat. Of course, he's a Democrat from Evanston, voted in eight Democrat primaries, zero Republican ones. So the BGA, which nonpartisan, raises money from Republican and Democrat donors. Yeah, shame on you, Republican donors. How dense are you? Be more clueless giving money to the BGA. Why? Because... Its name is the Better Government Association, so they must be in the business of better government. How naive are you? How much of a simpleton are you, Republican donor who gives to the BGA? But I digress. Uh-huh. Of the 15 staff members analyzed from Block Club Chicago, another oh. self-described nonprofit, 14 Democrats, the one who was not... 27-year-old reporter Melanie Mercado, who voted Republican in a single primary from her parents' home in Belvedere when she was still in college. Mm. Collectively, 15 block club staffers voted in 32 Democrat primaries to the single one by the young Miss Mercado. Uh-huh. But I'm partisan. Uh-huh. In the 225 voter files examined, 103 reporters, 90 Dems, 38 editors, 35 of them Dems, 27 television anchors and reporters, all of whom were Dems. They include primary, uh, they include, uh, you know, anchors like Allison Rosati, eight Democrats to two GOP, Rob Stafford, two Dem to no GOP, Marion Brooks, nine Dem to zero GOP, Marion Ahern, your buddy, nine Dem to two GOP. How about uh, over at ABC7, Shell Burton, 15 Dems, 0 GOP. Leah Hope, 10 Dems, 0 GOP. How about at, uh, well, staying at ABC7, you have Tanya Babbage, who voted in one Republican primary and zero Democrat. Of course, she's married to the son of uh, Saka Durbin, so that's a wash. How about those sports anchors, those score, those those readers of stale sports scores, like Marchie and Greco, who want to be taken seriously so they mimic people that they think are smarter than them, which they may or may not be. I think they're sort of on the same level, frankly. But they're all part of the same little cabal, the same little echo chamber. Ryan Baker, CBS2, three Dems, zero GOP. Lou Canellis, the great Lou Canellis, great entrepreneur. Lou. Five Dem, one GOP. Well, at least he has one GOP. Yeah. Maybe that's the change. Uh-huh. That'll uh-huh. remain permanent. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, oh, Amy Jacobson's on this list. Am I? You got me last time. Well, I yeah. know you know my story. It's a it's a it's a real turnaround story, which <laughs> oh, we appreciate. I'm four and six. You're four and six. <laughs> yeah. Four Dem. Now you're you're up to six GOP. Keep it going. Keep the roll going. You're on a streak. This is I'm a restaurant hostess. No, I'm a host. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, well, you are a host on AM560. Oh, yeah. This, this, this just in, breaking news. Oh, Dina Beer. One Dem, five Republican. Mm-hmm. Chuck Gowdy. How about Chuck Gowdy? You know, oh, so Chuck just for Gowdy. fun, the outliers. Chuck Gowdy, one Dem, 14 GOP. What? I wouldn't have thought that. Craig Wall, zero Dem, seven GOP. Mm-hmm. Phil Good. Rogers. Good for him. I don't feel three and three. Mm-hmm. Isn't I this like fun? These, no, this is fun. I like this. I like to see well. My Derek former, Blakely. My for, oh, Derek. Don't former, get me started about Derek. Blakely. I know. I've had so many exchanges with him on Facebook over the years. 13, get me started. 13 Dem, one GOP. You know what? Uh-huh. I want to tell a story about Derek Blakely, but I'll run it by people first before I tell it on the air. Doug Wolf, uh, anchor in Decatur, which is a. Decatur, yes. Which is a city that has been completely decimated by terrible public policy, lost all sorts of manufacturing, is beset by crimes. I I literally, I think this is still true, has the highest concentration of ex-cons per capita in the state. Doug Wolf, the anchor there, WAND-TV indicator, 17 Dems, zero Republicans. Oh, come on. Micah Matiri, one of our great debate moderators. Yes. One of our great debate moderators for, for the gubernatorial debate, right? Uh, way to go, GOP. Why even participate? I mean, I, I know you sort of have to participate because you want your opportunity and where are you going to go. But, I mean, nine Dem, zero GOP. Of course. But, she, uh, you know, even-handed. She's voting. I'll, I'll tweet this out so you can take a look. It's your favorite. Uh, Neil Steinberg, when did he stop beating his wife? Nobody knows. Uh <laughs> Chicago Sun-Times, columnist still, hilarious, AFL-CIO, NPR Times, 9, Dem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Paul Saltzman, the deputy managing editor of the AFL-CIO, NPR Times, 10-0. Steve Mills, the deputy Midwest editor of ProPublica. Oh, another nonpartisan oh, yeah, journalism, right. uh, mm-hmm. 10 or uh, 11-0. My- Michael Ke- Sneed, Psst, Sneedling. One to zero. Carolyn Broquette, the editor uh, editor at CBS2 Chicago, 15-0. You know, you got to look at the editors, too. Oh, the editors, they have a huge power over what's put up on, on the air. No question. Because they have the editors meeting, and they decide. They decide. I mean, you could advocate for yourself and push for your stories. That's what I used to do. And I had great editors. I would listen and find whatever you want to do. Um, but there's in other newsrooms, they dictate everything. Seamus Toomey, formerly uh, of the AFL-CIO NPR Times, now the publisher of the Block Club, 12-0. You know, I'll give you one example of an outlier, because there are outliers. Yeah. Michelle Guy. Scott Fornick, who's a politics editor of Chicago Sun-Times. He's, and I've, we, when we've done a look-see like this before, I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. 16-0, Dem to Republican. But I have to tell you, when he was a pol- po- political reporter, when I was running campaigns back then, when he was a beat reporter for politics and I was running campaigns back in the day, throughout the years, he was always fair. I got to tell you, so it's possible that this is and, – and actually he's a good example of the larger point. It's possible to have views divergent from the people you're covering and still be fair. Uh, but that's not – that's the – Outlier. Frankly, that's the unicorn these days because everybody has been flipped over to activist mode. And so it is possible. And it's also possible to be transparent about what your beliefs are. In fact, it's a moral imperative that you're transparent about your views 
and how they inform the story choices you make, the way you choose to cover them. But very few people do that. We do that at these papers, and we're, you know, fake news, right-wing, blah, blah, blah. Well, well, we're telling you we have a perspective on public policy. We're coming from this philosophical place. You are coming, mainly, from the opposite philosophical place. But you pretend you're not. So who is operating with integrity and who is not? Who's faking it and who is not? Greg Hines, reporter Cranes, 16 to 0. Shocking. I know you're surprised. Yeah. But like I'm like Dame Placco, 4-0 Republican primaries. Dorothy Tucker, CBS 2, 11-0. Stephanie Zimmerman, reporter of AFL-CIO Times, 12-0. I mean, the, the AFL-CIO Times, I mean, it's, a, it's only they're pitching a perfect game. Well, Or you could be like Warner Saunders, and he knew people like you would be pulling records, and he never, ever voted in a primary. Yeah, but you don't have to. Well, well you get Pira, Chuck, I, Chuck Gowdy, I wouldn't have guessed that he never. was this uh, dyed-in-the-wool Republican. Well, because uh, he gets it. He's smart. He, he well, he does investigative around. stories. He does, and and he lives uh, out in the burbs. Well, but whatever. It's not where he lives. He does it. It's, I'm talking about his work product. Okay. It, you can live in the city and be a Republican. You can live in Hinsdale, as most do these days, and be a socialist. Right. What does that have to do with anything? It's the work product is the issue. The professionalism is the issue, or the complete absence of said professionalism, the complete absence of said competence. That's the issue. And it's a simple thing. It's a simple question that I ask any time we talk about things like this. Okay. So um, if 85% of these 423 journalists we looked at, if 98% of the ones who live and work in Chicago media outlets, if they were Republican instead of Democrat, do you think the coverage would be any different? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred. And of course it would. Of course, it, yes. Of course it would. But but when you suggest that, but but they won't admit to the obvious, which also speaks to the lack of integrity, because they want to pretend that they're right down the middle, and they are pretending. And when I say pretending, I mean lying to themselves and to you, but mainly to you. Would it be any different? Of course it would. They say. What? What can they say? Hand in the cookie jar. Phil and Darian, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, I did not hear you mention uh, our two BLM uh, Channel 9 uh, Yeah, Micah Mateer. Yeah. Micah Mateer, 9 yeah, She's nine zero. Nine zero. How about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, that and, explains uh, why. That explains. That explains why she blasted. Uh, you know, our, our favorite governor to be. Isn't that something non-biased? Yeah. Right. right. Thanks for the call, Phil. What? Uh, who is the other one? Uh, who is the other? Oh, Tamon Bradley. Oh yeah. Uh, let's see if. Let's see what Tamon. Well, you know, I mean. We oh, Ben Ben Bradley, who got away paying nothing on his property taxes. They just sold his place in Hinsdale. He he should have paid because I did the math three hundred sixty thousand dollars. Guess how much he paid? You mean if he was like paying the same property taxes as his neighbors? Yeah. Similarly valued, situated houses. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. He was paying five grand a no, year. No, four thousand nine hundred ninety nine. Not that I really care about the uh, number. Five. So he's paying five grand a year in a okay. house he sold for one point seven million. Uh-huh. Huh. Yeah. 
Um, I, you know, I mean, he must have played, must have paid in the, you know, tens of thousands. Three sixty, fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. Should have paid three sixty. Uh-huh. That's a good break. I mean, I, I live in a little shanty, <laughs> and I pay. I mean, he pays four thousand. I pay twice that to live in a shack in the city, an A-frame. Uh-huh. Where, where and he's got ben, five and a half baths. Wait, wait, so where's Ben Bradley? I'm scrolling. You know, ben Bradley is two and two. Two and two. Oh, right down the middle. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Alan uh, Krzyzewski, one and one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm no, looking Deanna for... No, Deanna Miller, sports reporter, ABC7, 012. So I'm looking for Tamon Bradley because okay. the other the other uh, debate will we'll, we'll effort him. Uh, Greg Jefferson Park. Hey, good morning, guys. And there, then there's the sellouts like you uh, talked about last week. Mary Wisniewski, who now works for Tim Evans. You know, it kills me. She worked for both the Sun-Times and the Tribune, pretty much always told the left line. And then, uh, you know, uh, she lives in Old Irving Park uh, slash Avondale. You should see her house. You know, you talk about uh, nice. You know, people are living a good life, and they're these, uh, you know, there's these extreme Democrats who just keep telling the line and keep getting richer in the process. And then at the end, they end up with a nice government pension. You guys have a good one. Thanks, Greg. Carl, Marionette Park. Uh, good morning, Dan. Good, Amy. Um, good morning, Amy, and thank you for taking my call again. Uh, thank you, uh, AM listeners, for listening. I just want to remind everybody that we know November 8th is Election Day and November 11th is Veterans Day, and we have to honor these veterans who sacrificed to give us the great country we, we once had. And uh, the way we can show honor is by voting these thugs out of office. This country belongs to we the people. The state of Illinois belongs we the people, not the not the thugs like Pritzker. Do the right thing. Honor the veterans. Vote these these thugs out of office. And I hate to say it as much as I hate to say this, that includes Tammy Duckworth. I know she served honorably in the military, but she betrayed this country. She 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 betrayed we, the people of Illinois. She votes for this thuggery to continue the murders. She could care less about you, and neither could Pritzker. I want to close by saying, you know, read an article you can Google from October 3rd of 2018 about all these shenanigans Pritzker has been involved in, every one of them. And this is not fake news. It was reported by the Chicago Tribune, and you can see the kind of thug he is. Take this state back. Dan and Amy, again, I love you. May the good forces always be with you. And may the good forces be with the good people of Illinois. Thank you, Dan and Amy. Thank you, Carl. Yeah, and, thank you, Carl. Thanks so much for listening. Well, you know, I mean, Pritzker, I, I don't know if Carl was referring to him, you know, pulling the toilets out of his uh, Gold Coast mansion to lower his property tax bill. But now you understand why. He was just trying to get down to Ben Bradley's number. Exactly. What's wrong and with then, that? And then also, too, don't forget, Tammy Duckworth. Is has already backed Mayor Lightfoot for re-election. Come of course, on. just like uh, Pritzker's weighty. Like he was, he was in for her, and now it's election season. Well, on, so he, he didn't. It's it's weird because waiting. because he didn't on his own election. He didn't have any qualms about backing Kim Fox for re-election, which he did. Oh, that's right. Hmm. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer. On AM560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4. On AM560, The Answer. 
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. When you talk about the race for Illinois Comptroller, you must talk about who obtains the coveted endorsement of Henderson County farmer Dick Bigger. Yeah. And, uh... Do we have Dick Bigger? Dick Bigger yeah. Jr. is his Dick, name. Yeah, do we have the Dick Bigger outtakes? Yeah. I'm sure we do. Yeah. Um, he is, uh, was prominently featured in a Susanna Mendoza, uh, a recent, recent Susanna Mendoza ad, and they posted, uh, Dick Baker outtakes, the beloved figure that Dick Baker is in Illinois. Of course, they, uh, also posted the outtakes for public enjoyment. Susanna Mendoza, hold it. This tiny lady, this tiny lady got rid, rid this tiny lady got rid of Illinois' huge, unpaid backlog. Well, boy, backlogs. Backlogs. Log. This tiny lady got rid of Illinois' big, huge backlog of unpaid bills. This tiny lady is getting rid of Illinois' huge backlog of bills. Unpaid bills. Oh, boy. <laughs> Want to do it one more? Yeah. It's, it's weird because uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, her stage name, when she does karaoke, uh, yeah. Dick, Dick Bigger. Uh-huh. Strange. Maybe that's why he's gone with the junior to distinguish himself. Uh, all right. Well, she didn't get the Dick Bigger Jr. endorsement, but she is the Republican nominee for state comptroller. She's Shannon Teresi, ShannonTeresi.com, for more information about her candidacy and campaign. She joins us now. Shannon, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. What uh, what happened? Uh, what was the fallout? Was there a fallout between you and Mr. Bigger? Susanna Sus- got to him first, I right. think. Right. <laughs> she's hearing about this man for the first time, is Dan. She? So let's. Oh say, come yes. on! He's a, he's a cause celeb. I know it's a it's a it's, it's hilarious that she's even campaigning on this when she's actually took on debt to pay down short term debt. She's it's nothing if not hilarious. A shell game. Yeah, so she's, she's lying to us. Oh, yes. no, another Democratic is, politician not telling us the truth. Yeah. Overall, the state has taken on more debt, and she's literally just talking about, about the general fund, and that represents not just like one fund, or that's one fund, but it's not just like one out of ten funds or one out of twenty. It's one out of a hundred funds. So it's like a hundred bank accounts the state has. What essentially she's doing is like paying off one credit card with 25 more and then shoving the 25 more under her uh, mattress. Like any good college student. Right. So, so here's the paint a picture for us of what the state's finances actually are, because we see commercials and we hear the the Dem statewide's talking about uh, the, you know, the great accomplish of moving Illinois bond rating from 50th in the nation to 50th in the nation. And uh, the uh, the uh, unpaid bills that were paid and the balanced budgets. And so you hear the governor and others continuing to tout this line of description of Illinois state finances. So what is the actual state of Illinois state finances? It's a mess. I mean, the state is the worst run organization I've ever seen in my professional career as a CPA and forensic accountant. The government waste is egregious. 
And looking up in the financial statements, there's no balanced budgets. It actually completes, paints a very different story. I don't know how J.B. Pritzker is campaigning on it when it's just an outright lie. The state has actually declined by $73 billion since Mendoza's been in office and probably excess of $50 billion since J.B.'s been in office. I mean, this is going directly in the opposite direction, like running off a giant cliff and then throwing Illinoisans over. And they really would need to do a press release every day for all the new debt they're taking on. When, when you say decline by 73, uh, by, by 50 right. since J.B., what, what, what do, you, you, do you mean? It's the the def- net worth. Of the oh, the, the net worth of the state has declined by that number. And it's negative. So basically our children have more net worth than the state. Even if you're really bad with finances and you, you know, about to declare bankruptcy, you have more net worth than the state. The state's net worth is negative $199 billion. Well, it sounds like a hot mess. Why would you want this job anyway then? That's a great point. <laughs> the My background leads perfectly. Like, I could do this job in my sleep. I mean, I read the state's finances in my sleep, but it, being a CPA and a certified fraud examiner and a certified internal auditor, I've actually prepared government-wide financial statements. I've led criminal investigations on ghost payroll, uh, double billing. Uh, we rooted out uh, corruption in a dental clinic. I'm trained to change, I'm a trained change agent to help on performance and operations in government. I know how to get the job done and lead a state and wide initiative to financially reform the state so we could actually fund education, transportation, make Illinois the envy of every state in the nation versus well, the butt of all jokes. We'll talk a little bit about your, your experience then. So you're the McHenry County Auditor. Um, and so, you know, sort of what have you done in that office at the county level that you want to scale statewide? Absolutely. So I'm the elected McHenry County Auditor and president of the County Auditors Association. And we actually pay bills in minutes. We It's completely automated. And we implemented a countywide financial system as well to dramatically change the way we do business. Everything is tremendous transparent across all departments and we have information in our office finance treasures all at the click of our uh, mouse and this information is foyable and we now have no debt in our county we're triple a yes this is a big deal this is this is the headline (laughs) this is the headline this can be done with just common sense financial management We actually implemented, we stopped elected officials from spending on waste and department heads. We now approve all purchases through my office before money's going out the door Mm -hmm. or services are rendered. We make sure it's not chapstick with a politician's name on it. I mean, right now, Susanna Mendoza just misplaced $1.6 billion of our taxpayer money and, and she's not a CPA. She's not a forensic accountant. She's what is she? She's a she's a former state legislator, which explains why she's running the comptroller's office like the General Assembly runs the budget. Yeah, she's Mike Madigan's protege. That's what she is. She 
is not an accountant, and she would, if this was. Well, how do you so, do this job not being, like, there must be somebody there that is an accountant that's doing this work There's an army of accountants, and they lack complete leadership. I mean, that office is so disorganized. If this was a corporation, she should be the CFO for the entire corporation. But right now, she wouldn't even get a job interview for that role. And the employees are not cross-trained. They are not impacting other departments on the way they do business and the financial operations. And attracting Illinois businesses here. They're make they're making Illinois businesses run from the state. To talk to us a little bit about, you know, the COVID funny money that's papered over the some of the uh the the gaping holes in the state's finances that you're describing. So what, that money is now running through the system, but it will run out. And then where are we going to be a year or two years from now if we don't change course here? Absolutely. So the COVID money did not, that's what caused the bond rating increase, not financial reform. And absolutely, they are spending that money as if it's additional revenue that they're going to keep getting. And even with the COVID money, every year the state has declined. And that means our children is going to be paying for this debt, our grandchildren, My great-great-grandchildren are going to be paying for the debt of the decisions and the money that they're spending now. And it's not a sustainable path. And so the next two years, we're going to be back at junk bond status. If J.B. Pritzker and Susanna Mendoza get elected, they're going to be taxing the hell out of residents. And the time to change is now. We need to wake up. We have the worst-run organization. You can't rely on the state's finances. And we have someone in charge of it that lacks complete leadership. Uh, according to Truth and Accounting, which does these annual reports on the financial well-being of major cities around the country, as well as all 50 states, second worst state in the nation, Illinois has $28.5 billion available to pay $254 billion worth of bills, because unlike how we account for unfunded pension obligations, truth and accounting, also accountants, um, they account for all of your liabilities. They don't just uh, push off liabilities you don't want to deal with because that's not how it works. So that's about $52,000 per taxpayer or $208,000 for a family of four. That's the kind of debt we're talking about that you're describing. Uh, Yes, absolutely. I mean, we are the worst run state, have the highest debt. Actually, they raised taxes by 32%, and I call it the corruption tax here in Illinois because of the cost of corruption that now they're raising taxes to pay for all this government waste. I mean, we have the highest foreclosures, now the highest unemployment. That came out recently. It is a time for change, and it's really the key to changing everything in this state is financial leadership and just common sense financial management. Would Susanna Mendoza, did she debate you? Did you offer? No, I absolutely want to debate I, I Mendoza. You, just, you would destroy her. She, I, we had a Daily Herald interview, and after the first question, I realized she had no clue what she was talking about. She thinks mm. she's only responsible for the comptroller's office. When they misplaced the $1.6 billion, she's like, oh, that's in the 
treasurer's office. I, I know I was supposed to record those entries, but, you know, it's the second year in the row. Yeah, we had this. But, you know, it's on the treasurer. I, I don't have anything to do with it. I, I just do stuff in the comptroller's office. Like, That's no accountability yeah. of a leader. I challenge Mendoza to a debate. And if she's chicken, the taxpayers are going to suffer because we're not having that opportunity to have that civil discord, to talk about the issues, and for her to be held accountable. You know, I mean, maybe it's she just hasn't, you know, finished auditing that uh, accounting one-on-one course she's taken at UIC. Right. So maybe, maybe in an extra. Um, so uh, the, the, the just talking about unfunded liabilities, so that necessarily implicates the public sector pension system. Right. When you have uh, public sector pensions, I mean, it's more at the city level than the state, although the state's obviously has the highest unfunded pension liability in the country, Illinois does. They're not circling the drain the way that uh, city of Chicago police and fire pensions are yet. But when you have pension funds that start to dip below 50% funded, much less as in the city with some of these funds, less than 25, less than 20% funded, what does that mean? What's going to happen? It means that the state's pension crisis is ballooning. It is getting larger every year. And that means that what the Democrats' solution to it is to tax. And if J.B. Pritzker, Mendoza get reelected, it means that Illinois is going to be not just right now, we're the least attractive state. We're going to be what no one wants it to be. I mean, we're going to have to move our children out of this state, well, move the our families th- and our businesses. And that's what is on the line, but it is a solvable problem. I, The unions want it solved, and the unions shouldn't be voting for J.B. Pritzker and Mendoza because they're not even funding their pensions. Right. Like, this is the, this is the great conundrum. That's rewarding bad behavior. It's, but, but, I mean, but, so, so two things. One is, I mean, if you, you know, depending on market returns on any given year, you're talking about pension funds that at some point are going to fail. I mean, right. you just can't continue on that path in right. perpetuity. If something can't go on forever, it won't. But but so that's number one. And then number mm-hmm. two, when you say they're solvable, means solvable in the sense of well, you need to budget for the contributions you need to make annually and make those contributions. That's what you mean by solvable, right? Uh, partially, but also we need to sit down with the unions. We need to sit down with the general assembly and have real conversations. And that's what I'm trained to do as an auditor, is I'm a professional consultant. I have departments asking me to do audits to get my advice on how to do business. And this is an opportunity to sit down with them because they want their pensions funded. They want solutions. They want to be able to have a future for their families and be able to retire one day. They worked hard. And they earn that money. And there is an opportunity for change here. And there's no one size fits all. And as an auditor, I don't assume things going in. I uh, meet with the departments, talk with them, hear both sides, and really learn about the issue. And then provide recommendations. And a lot of times, there are solutions already out there on this topic. And that's what I'll do as comptroller is to lead by listening first. And and so in sum, sum up the choice in a sentence or two for Illinois voters when it comes to the comptroller's race, Teresi versus Mendoza. The choice is what? The 
choice is to vote for someone that is qualified, someone that who has financial leadership experience to lead the state. We can choose more taxes and our money just going to fraud and waste and government mismanagement, or we can choose right now Republican, even if you're Republican or Democrat, I am the candidate for every Illinoisan. I am a mom. I understand the struggle that Illinoisans are going through, and I will provide leadership the state needs and provide that direction on day one. You had me at vote for someone who's qualified. Yeah. Uh, that would be a seismic shift in and of itself. Uh, she is Shannon Teresi. She's the, currently the McHenry County Auditor. She's the Republican nominee for Comptroller. She's on the ballot every day leading up to November 8th, including on November 8th. I hope she's on the ballot every day and everywhere uh, going up to November 8th. You never know. But she is uh, Shannon Teresi, T-E-R-E-S-I, ShannonTeresi.com for more information on her candidate candidacy and campaign to get involved in this final week. Shannon, Teresi, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a wonderful day, everyone. And get out and vote and bring your neighbors to the polls. This is an opportunity. There is a movement. And everyone needs to join in because taxes, crime, and corruption, it matters here in Illinois. Time is now. Thank you. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, and uh, our efforts to bring you the closing arguments for candidates for statewide office, some of the key congressional races, many offices as we can get to between now and Tuesday. We just heard from Republican nominee for Comptroller, Shan- uh, Shannon Teresi. And now we turn our attention to the Secretary of State's race because, uh, in case you hadn't heard, Jesse White is finally retiring. He means it this time. He, really? Are you sure? Are you sure? He's not on the ballot. That's that's how we yeah. know. Uh, and so the matchup is between uh, Central Illinois State Rep Dan Brady from Bloomington, Republican nominee, and uh, Obama's personal rebounder. No, not Arnie Duncan. The other personal the rebounder. Other one. Yes, there's more than one. Allie G. Uh, Allie G. and the Gino's family, the beneficiary. You you might remember uh, just in the weeks leading up to the 2010 Senate race when he ran against Mark Kirk and lost. Allie G. Yep. Allie G. and his Broadway Bank, which specialized in making loans to mobsters failed, and the Giannullius family got a $400 million bailout courtesy of you and me and the federal taxpayer, U.S. taxpayers. Unbelievable. Golden parachutes for guys who made a living out of making juice loans to mobsters. Their bank fails. We pay the bill. Sounds like a perfect candidate for high office in Illinois. You rejected him once in 2010. Hopefully, the people of Illinois will do the same in 2022. We're now pleased to be joined by state rep and Republican nominee for Secretary of State, Dan Brady. Dan, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Amy, how are you this morning? Morning. Um, so, you know, we we know Giannullius' political history and um, 
but perhaps some people need a refresher. I also remember that he threw in and was tight with Jesse Jackson Jr. before Jr. had to go away for spending campaign cash on Bruce Lee memorabilia. But uh, that's who he threw in with when he ran for statewide office the first time. Who's he throwing in with this time? Well, that, that's a, a good question, Dan. There's there's all kinds of different folks that uh, uh, are part of maybe who you say he's throwing in for. But, you know, my focus has been on this race has been my broad base of experience, what, I, what I've done, how I've interacted with the offices. You know, this office is, is more about, obviously, public service and less about public policy. Um, in my particular background, through private business, through county service, uh, and then as of state representative, uh, gives me a broad-based knowledge of everything from organ donation that I've been very involved with to distracted driving for teens to senior services, and then how are we going to streamline and bring this office into the 21st century um, post-Secretary um, uh, White's retirement here. And so we've talked about a number of those issues all across the trail. Uh, and what I think what's really resonating with folks is the fact of, you know, Dan, do a couple things to get elected. Number one, Cut the wait times. Yes, we all agree on that. And the other is, can you cut some of the fees associated with uh, renewals, et cetera? And we've talked about that in a, a program that I announced and legislation I filed of a uh, fee reduction, at least temporarily, of $50 per, uh, per renewal. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of issues. And, you know, this office touches more lives on a daily basis than any other executive branch office there is. And, yes, everybody thinks driver's licenses, and that's, that's the, a main part of the, uh, the focus. But also it, it touches businesses. Uh, it has the division of securities. So think of that. My opponent is asking to be the head of the division of securities in the Secretary of State's office with the history you just uh, alluded to uh, and leaves you scratching your head, quite frankly. And then I'm not using this office for a springboard into something else. Uh, right, and I yes. don't believe that's the case with my opponent, certainly. Um, and I, so the work that I've been doing, uh, interacting with this office, as even as representative and, and being part of the budget process for the over $474 million Secretary of State's uh, budget, uh, I believe gives me the experience, the knowledge, and interaction with the office uh, to hit the ground running uh, on November the 9th. Well, and, and, you know, here's the, you know, you're, uh, you've been around long enough to remember how the Secretary of State's office used to run and maybe to some extent still does. I'm not as close to it as you are. But it's, it was a patronage dumping ground for both parties, depending on who uh, held the office. And, and uh, this isn't denigrating all Secretary of State employees, but it is denigrating some of them, you know, for politicians to put their idiot cousins into jobs where they can stay out of the way and, be quiet and make a decent living and then get a nice pension. So what, what about that? What about the Secretary of State's office, not just as a springboard to governor, which it, which, which it was because, of it, because it was a patronage dumping ground. So this is how you build up your, your army of precinct workers to then try and take it to another office, notably governor. So h- how do you see the Secretary of State's office on that score right now? And, and if there's still problems, what would you do? Well, it's, uh, obviously, the Secretary of State's office right now is, is the largest in the country. Um, uh, over 4,000 employees, Dan and Amy. Um, and, yes, there's 21 divisions, which makes up the Secretary of State's office. And, and correct, there's also two major unions that um, are part of, when the employment side of things go with certain employees in the Secretary of State's office. All those type of um, uh, areas you just alluded to, have been, yes, in the past. And it's been part of R&D side of things and DNR and whatever your political makeup is. But I, I look at the office, as I said, as an office of, of public service. And 
one of the things I've talked about, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, doing this and, and having to spend more uh, hard earned tax dollars. I'm talking about a couple of things we can do right off the bat. Number one, uh, of our 96 facilities, make sure people, employees are cross-trained, um, that we fully staff these services, meaning that people in the offices of the Secretary of State's office who could be out in the front lines uh, get out to the front lines in these facilities and serve the public. Uh, so we have a better interaction um, and experience for everybody on both sides of that counter. And as you indicated, there are some great employees there at the Secretary of State's office. Uh, and then, like any office, there's others that just want to want to make sure they can uh, fade away and, and make sure that the, the taxpayers are taking care of them. And that's not the case, and that's not what I certainly want to have happen in the Secretary of State's office and won't. So cross-training, fully staffing the facilities is step number one. And you're going to have to prioritize things. Prioritizing to me means what's the greatest public service, who interacts the greatest. It's these facilities that people come to expecting to get services. And we got to do more remote-wise. So, yes, there, there is a, there's a big potential of patronage that's occurred over the years, uh, but that's not something that uh, I'm going to be focusing on. I'm going to be focused on how we can bring the most efficiency to the office. And, of course, you hear that from any candidate running, understand but the reality is, I think people who know me on both sides of the aisle know my track record, my ability to try and, 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 and a, a bipartisan fashion, to try and get some things done and not be part of the, uh, the, the problem, but part of the solution. Uh, and that starts with the fact of making sure we prioritize what these services are supposed to be in this office. Again, less about policy, more about public service. And you also oversee the Illinois State Library. What changes would you make there? If any. Well, as the chief librarian, and there's about 5,000 libraries across the state of Illinois, as the chief librarian, the, the focus for me would be expanding services, especially in, in rural Illinois, that the, those libraries do not have broadband. Uh, some of the you know, Internet services are, are very scratchy, if, if at all. Um, looking at those particular uh, areas and, and facilities to upgrade those. And then number two, a big part of the, the library service side of things for the Secretary of State's office is uh, funding for expansion of libraries um, and, you know, building. And, and that's something certainly, as well as literacy programs that are very important and, and what's been done and what could be done uh, for those who are, are um, handicapped, hearing impaired, visual, um, and how we can improve those services. But especially, especially bringing technology to the rural areas of libraries across uh, primarily southern Illinois that needs help. You, you mentioned cross-training, so sort of culture within SOS. And, you know, this is something I, I don't know if I've ever heard a candidate talk about, but it's something that, you know, people talk about. What is your experience like when you interface with SOS employees, say, where most people do at the DMV? And, uh, you know, uh, it could be a little bit more customer service friendly at a lot of those DMVs. And I'm sure that's a complaint you've heard often. So, you know, training employees to be nice. more like Chick-fil-A employees rather than more like people who you're bothering by showing up to get your driver's license re uh, renewed. Well, there's, there's something, Dan, called uh, predictive analytics. And, and what that is, a big technology term for the fact that, you know, we could even with managing staff and, and technology today predict uh, based on historic foot traffic, uh, times of day, time, you know, just days of the week, certain months, et cetera, um, where the greatest um, traffic patterns are, the greatest problems, the greatest delays, and focus on that. I, I've also talked about looking at our 38 community college campuses 
many who are uh, in the vicinity of some of these um, uh, facilities that have the most difficult and, and lengthy wait times. Look at what those particular areas, um, community colleges, have to offer right now. That tax, taxpayers are paying for. They could serve as hub stations or possibly uh, lease space for it, a new facility before we waste money on uh, antiquated facilities. Um, think about it. Number one, taxpayers are paying for the facilities. Number two, uh, in my area, CDL, commercial driver's license training, is going on in uh, a community college because of their space availability, security, safety, technology, uh, protection of personal data uh, with, with uh, the technology that's built in, uh, and uh, public transportation. Uh, to many of the, uh, to all of these facilities, quite frankly, in community colleges, and the taxpayers are paying for all of that. Think of that infrastructure that's already there before you go starting to renew some of these leases that are costing over ten and a half million dollars for some of these integrated facilities. And what it takes is somebody who's going to take the bull by the horns, be a leader, prioritize, uh, you know, have stakeholders with you, and get input from people who know what they're talking about and try and move the office forward. And when you talk about cross training, or I talk about cross training. There's really two reasons people find themselves going to a facility, driver's facilities. Number one is because they either need help with driver services or number two, vehicle services. If you have an employee that's cross-trained in both those areas, when you get to that end of that line, you don't get told, I don't know what he or she does. They're not here today. You need to see them. You come back uh, when they're here. Well, you know, that, that creates friction on both sides of that counter when you have that. And some of these ideas I'm talking about you know, aren't just mine people I hear from, they're actual employees that say, hey, Dan, you get here, you do these type of things, you're going to help everybody, uh, and especially uh, the customer who needs that service uh, and have a better interaction uh, and just a better experience overall. I've been thrilled to get a number of endorsements. I've been working very extremely hard across the state. Um, Dan, as, as you know, Amy, as you know, we've talked before over the last couple months in this campaign trail. Uh, it's boiling down now to um, a week, and um, we continue to charge uphill. And I, and I hope that the people of Illinois will take a serious look at it and with what you indicated uh, in the background of my opponent and be realistic about who's got the greatest uh, experience, life experience, uh, not only government, but private business uh, that can move this office forward. And I believe I'm the better choice. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, it's it's great to hear somebody running for an office that they're actually interested in operating efficiently. I mean, you've obviously put a lot of thought into the details of how the Secretary of State's office is run, and you know a lot about it for being in the General Assembly. So it's sort of refreshing you have, like, this sort of granular knowledge. I mean, frankly, this is why this is part of the reason, it's an underappreciated reason why Ron DeSantis is so popular in Florida and is a potential presidential candidate, is because he actually takes an active interest in understanding and addressing the day-to-day machinery of government. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're going to do with the Secretary of State's office, which... Uh, frankly, differentiates you from, I don't know, every other secretary of state candidate or secretary of state I could think of. I, I've never, I mean, I've never heard like that level of detail about the actual operation of the agency. Well, I, I appreciate that. And that's what's been uh, resonating. You know, look, the polls are polls. Uh, the trend is breaking our way. Uh, yes, uh, we're mismatched for resources uh, when it comes to money. But I had experienced the same problem in the primary. I wasn't supposed to win there. So uh, all one can do is take your, your uh, campaign, continue to move it forward, uh, talk to people across the state of Illinois. Yes, i got to get uh, independent votes, and I've got to get disgruntled Democrats uh, to pull this thing off. 
uh, and, and that's uh, something that I continue to work on uh, every day. And one of the things really, Dan and Amy, I, I experience is people, you know, yes, the parties are the parties, and I'm the Republican nominee. But really what the people are looking for is a party of efficiency for this office. It's, it's rather unique. Um, and what, what, you know, if you're, if you're a parent that has a son or daughter waiting on, on the organ transplant list, uh, they don't care if it's coming from, uh, that organs coming from a Republican right. or Democrat, right. they want to make sure that the office, um, that deals with organ donation and tissue donation across the state of which I've been part of when I was County coroner, and actually sat with families and asked that very question in an ICU or in an emergency room after a death and someone's on life support, um, you know, that. I, I know that firsthand. I've worked with the Secretary of State's office, proposed legislation regarding that, um, in, in particular 16, uh, 16 17 year olds, uh, to be part of that uh, list if they wish, with the parental opt out, uh, first person consent's been part of this. Um, our numbers have gone down in Illinois. We used to be the leader. Um, we need to bring, bring back the uh, education and, and uh, recognition and a potential process of that. And there's lots of ways to do that. And, and we can uh, make it something to where uh, the communication is strengthened between uh, our hospitals, our transplant teams, sector state's office, 24-hour uh, hotline dealing with donations and um, a gift of hope. So all those areas are areas that I have actual experience and knowledge of. And the list goes on in many of the others. So it's like it's a sort of and your opponent and is just, and now you're, I agree. Your opponent is completely using this to, as a stepping stone to try to get to the governor's mansion. Well, well it's, not, it, none it, of know, this detail. Then his commercials are so goofy. I mean, during the primary, he was in a OBGYN's office talking about abortion rights, which has nothing to do with the secretary of state's office. And then now he's in a gym and giving kids ice cream. So I, that is That's nothing sure. to do with Secretary None of that moves you through the lines quicker. What moves you through the lines quicker is talking about more remote services, different things, looking at everything from having kiosks and our, our uh, uh, libraries to grocery stores so you can renew um, and, and do things along those lines. When you have these ideas and bring them forward in, in a way that's um, supported by um, the taxpayer and not totally funded by the taxpayer, but using those dollars wisely, you're going to have, uh, as I said, a better experience. You're going to cut down the foot traffic, bring the office in the 21st century. So lots of things we want to try and move the ball forward. But as we all know, got to get elected first. And that's why I'm out asking for people's vote. Yeah, it's sort of like the conversation we just had with Shannon Teresi for Comptroller. Yeah. Vote for someone who's qualified. What a novel concept. Um, so uh, Jesse White had the tumblers. Are you going to have like a trapeze act? <laughs> what, what The Dan Brady Dan dancers? Brady. What, what, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, certainly uh, into Jesse White and what he's done is, is, is with the with the tumblers and many other areas. Uh, I, I certainly applaud him and, and consider him a friend. And he has he and I have worked together. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's room for the Dan Brady Rockettes. I don't Dan, know wow, yeah, people. sure. I think well, people, the Dan Brady fun. Band. Maybe those those out of work honey bears that Virginia McCaskey put on the unemployment line. Maybe oh, they can, look good now. Bring them back. <laughs> uh, all right, Dan Brady. Uh, the website, votedanbrady.com. Don't just go to the website to find out more about his campaign and his candidacy. Follow the instructions of the website, votedanbrady.com. Dan Brady, Republican nominee for Secretary of State. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, and Amy, thank you very much. We ask for your vote. Thank you. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day. Then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law. 
for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank, gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois. You can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan. To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt. Not a matter of if anymore, but when. You're moving out. That theme music means it's time for our weekly conversation with Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints.com, all things Illinois policy and politics related. And speaking of politics, as uh, we discussed with her yesterday, former Dem congresswoman, now independent former congresswoman, Tulsi Gabbard was in town to endorse Darren Bailey's candidacy for governor in this state. And that drew a reaction from Spalding. Yeah, he took to the mean streets of Arlington Heights to meet business owners, you know, have a campaign event, going door to door. And when asked about Tulsi Gabbard's support of Darren Bailey. She's a pro-Russian conspiracy theorist. Um, she's somebody that has, uh, since she used to be a genuine Democrat, uh, clearly has bought into some of the uh, Facebook fakery and the kind of online lies that we're seeing. Right. Tulsi Gabbard, tough guy, Tulsi Gabbard, who Uh, served our country honorably in the armed forces, including in theater in Iraq. She is the Manchurian candidate, not this uh, trust, not this bloated trust fund governor who's such a wimp and trying to act so tough and just repeating the, you know, the same lies that Hillary Clinton said. That's who she is. Give me a break. Just respect her service and don't even move on. That's not what they do. Hey, let's get like, he lets everything get under his skin. He's so ugh. well. That's no. It's yeah. He does, but I mean that's just what the left does. It's just the smear machine, firing up the smear machine, every single time. That is their hammer, to borrow from Paul Pelosi, hey, and everyone who opposes soon. them is a nail, smear machine. Tulsi Gabbard, Russian agent. I mean, my God, shameless. But that's ugh. that's a apt adjective for our current governor. Ted Dabrowski, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Um, Speaking of our uh, fair, bloated trust fund governor, uh, before he, you know, waddled around downtown Arlington Heights with state representative Mark Walker, uh, who at at this point may be in one, that guy's been around forever, before that, he was uh, last week at Morton West touting the wonderful progress that we've made in K-12 through education by evidence of the graduation rates. And the AFL-CIO NPR Times dutifully followed suit, touting that CPS schools are moving from 77% graduation rate five years ago to 82% a couple of years ago, now on track for 89% graduation rate. CPS is a success story, which is why no Chicago families flee the city when it's time for the kids to go to school. They are happy to send them to the neighborhood CPS school. Is that what's happening? Yeah, it's phenomenal. It, it, you know, Governor Pritzker had to reach for something. If, if you peel back the, the layers of this new Illinois report card for 2022, there's just not a whole lot of good news in it. And so they had to fabricate news. They had to make talk about growth rates. 
um, they, they had to talk about graduation rates because they couldn't talk about outright level of, be, of kids being able to read and do math because those results were down or flat. And that's on top of what happened between 2021 and 2019. So, so Pritzker is out there saying, you know, graduation rates are at the all time high. And, you know, for the, for the, for the person who's not paying attention for a lot of them, that sounds really good. And, you know, Governor Pritzker is doing a great job and we survived the pandemic, but, you know, again, once you look at the numbers, it is it is pathetic. And I'm going to go straight to the to the one he bragged about. He bragged about, you know, record graduation rates for minorities. So here you go. Here's what we saw in 2022. Uh, the the black students who graduated, 80 percent of black students, 80 percent of seniors graduated. So eight, eight out of every 10. What's fascinating is that only even less than 10 percent of those black kids could read a grade level grade level on the SAT. So you got 80% graduation rate and just 10% who can actually read a grade level. That that's a a lie. I, you know I don't know what you want to call it, but it's 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 such a a sleight of hand. And uh, how he how he and, and and well how the the media lets him get away with that is just phenomenal. And for Hispanics, it's 85% of those kids graduate, and yet just 16% can read a grade level. So. We're not setting up our, 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 our future workforce, our kids, our minorities. We're not setting them up for future. We're setting them up for failure by doing what we're doing. Well, teachers just pass them through just to get them out of their hair. Do, do people understand well, well, that, that? I mean, everyone knows that, right? Well, I, I don't know if everybody knows that. And, you know, and, and certainly a lot of people do know it. You know, CPS has lost over 100,000 students in the last 20 years. So there's plenty of parents who figured it out. But as we've talked about, there's a lot of kids who are, who are trapped there for many reasons. Uh, they shouldn't be there, uh, and you know, and and yet, you know, we talk about those empty, failing schools. It's it's a it's a disaster. It needs to be broken down. There's there's no fixing Chicago public schools. It needs to be reconstituted. School choice, full force. There's nothing left to do at CPS. And, and just to put some emphasis on it, we're not just talking about CPS. Mm-hmm. We're talking about statewide numbers where we've gone from 37 and a half percent, which is nothing to brag about, and. Uh, in uh, uh, reading proficiency statewide, 37 percent in 2019 to 2022, we're now under 30 percent. In math, 32 percent in 2019, now we're just over 25 percent. One in four, and a little uh, in math, a little bit more than one in four are proficient in reading statewide. So that necessarily includes a lot of suburban school districts. Yeah, well, here's the scary part, uh, Dan and Amy. Um, you know, for example, right now, like you said, three out of every ten kids can read at grade level across the entire state. A little bit less than that. Um, uh, and and so, the the better schools pulled that up. And what it tells you about a lot of the bigger barely. schools, a lot of the poor schools, yeah, barely. But but you've got places like I've talked about Decatur and Rockford and Elgin and all those. They are way down, way down for especially for the minorities, and so you've got you've got disaster scenarios across a whole bunch of different cities uh, where you're talking about future workforce, and you know th- there's no way to think about how a Decatur and, and places like you were talking about it, Decatur earlier, how is it going to function as a city? I mean, it already struggles today. How will it function in you know in a decade decade from now? Well, but also too, but but also too, as particularly, I mean, but, but even including some of the wealthy enclaves, but but particularly uh, working level uh middle working middle income level school districts and a lot of the less well-heeled suburbs 
I mean, it, you know, these are 50-50 propositions in terms of proficiency in reading and math when these kids graduate. So it's a cross-race. It's a cross-region. You have a systemic problem with government K-12 through in Illinois. Yeah, don't get me wrong, Dan. I wasn't trying to defend a lot of those schools. It's just it's so pathetic in some. But, yeah, overall, the average is so low. I mean, you know, even before COVID, right, even before COVID, we were, we were having just, you know, 37 out of every 100 kids being able to read at grade level. That means, that means you know, 63 couldn't, and um, that's pathetic. And, and again, that's, that's a, across the state average. And just to just to put this, you know, in some perspective, not to get too bogged down in numbers, but that's two nearly two in three kids out of two point one million kids in K-12. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of young mass. people that are behind the eight ball when they get out of high school. But, you know, Dan, I think I think the bigger story about this is just the way that they are able to present these things you know governor pritzker had no problem in in smiling and being happy and saying that illinois education has great promise we're doing well our students are growing in in all he said every single group uh, student group is growing uh you couldn't find that in the numbers there's nothing in the numbers that show that and uh you know when overall outcomes are down it doesn't matter if they're growing because net net it's down um and it's the same thing for you know this is this is something horrific to me They've got these school designations they're bragging about, like which schools are, are you know, the best, uh, what do they call those best schools? Uh, uh, exemplary is the best and commendable is the second best. And you've got a ton of schools which are named commendable where kids, you know, like for the whole school, like this Edna Rollins Elementary School, Aurora East, just 2% of the entire student population can read proficiently. And it's and commendable. Yet, ISB, calls it commendable so these are I, you know i hate to use the word lies because it sounds like i'm you know like but but, but it is and, and yeah and this is what they're trying to tell parents or trying to tell voters you know and, and you know just one week before before election they're, they're painting a beautiful picture of of a real failure across the board it's like whack that i mean i it's it's surreal and we, i go to these press conferences too and i tell the reporters you know this is bull drive right and they're like oh yeah we know and they try to push back, but he just keeps spewing these lies and not blaming the lockdowns, but COVID killing parents of school children. And that's why there's high truancy rates. And that's why we, we need to grow more because these kids have suffered. It doesn't make sense. But point of order, the Chicago press corps does not try to push back. No, they, the, the, the they, group that I was with that they, day at Morton they West. Do, they I don't did. care what the group is at Morton West. I care about the work product I see from Chicago press corps outlets. And what do I see from Chicago Press Corps outlets touting the party line? That's what you see almost everywhere, which is why you have so many people believing these beautiful lies. Well, and this is why Pritzker gets to keep making them, because nobody really, you know, Amy, with the exception of you, consistently, he just gets away with it. They all smile. They all, you know, clap and everything moves on. And that whole press release that he had at Morton, uh, Morton West, West uh, was, was fascinating. And, and, you know, that continues. It's like, you know, again, 97% of all teachers across the state were rated excellent or proficient, and that, that showed up one more time in the data. So nothing's changing except for that it's just maybe getting worse and getting deeper. And, uh, you know, once parents can ever figure this out, you know, this should be just a, a, a cross-the-board revolution against against the public school system the way it's operating. And, and the, other, oh. the other thing that he touts, and uh, is everybody, so many people go along with this too, including a lot of Republicans, it's infuriating. More money for our schools, and we poured more money into our schools, and we need to pour more money into our schools in addition to that. 
as if that's the that's what's lacking. And and here we see this report, which uh, we talked about nationally, uh, the covid money, the 120 billion in covid money that was drop shipped to schools around the country. Uh, 15 percent. This is the Amazon Post reporting. 15 percent of it has been spent. So the same thing goes here. School districts that received, uh, you know, like the Illinois schools generally received billions in covid funds and they're those funds are not being used for what the funds were marked earmarked to be used for. Uh, Diane Whitmore Sazenbach, who is a the director of the Institute for Policy Research at NU, if there are good ways to spend the money well right now, what are districts waiting for? Yeah, why is all this money that was so necessary to get kids back in school or to take the opportunity to upgrade school infrastructure, maybe a few shekels make its way to actual classroom instruction why is it being why is it not being spent yeah you know i think that's a great uh investigative reporting that needs to be done some forensic analysis as was being discussed earlier because you've got you know seven billion dollars coming into the into the state education just for that stuff and uh you know if you think about it there should be a full court press speaking basketball full court press on getting these kids especially the first and second graders who lost two years of of learning how to read should be full court press on that and just just catching people up and if they're not spending the money i guess you know money's fungible as we all know and once it gets into that system it'll find its way to other places but uh, that's another another thing that needs to be reviewed because it's another another failure of this um i want to note too uh, you're you've got an event tomorrow night we should profile for people on the north shore or anybody wants to trek up to the north shore to wilmette at a community center in wilmette on ridge road the truth about the Safety Act and other issues facing November uh, facing uh, voters on November eighth, a uh, week from today. That's tomorrow night, six thirty, at uh, the Mallon Rot Rot Mallon Rot Okay, whatever. I don't. I you know these Wilmette. Uh, yeah, I didn't we'll, pronounce we'll talk- it. The community center in Wilmette, and it's sponsored by Nutrient Neighbors. So you could go to Eventbrite Nutrient Neighbors to sign up for. That uh, program, you're going to be there. Your colleague from Wirepoints, Mark Lennon, is going to be there. Uh, what's on the docket when it comes to the truth about the Safety Act? Uh, because, again, just to continue to beat this drum right to the end, uh, you've got uh, the governor saying what uh, 100 of 102 county prosecutors and all these sheriffs say is just not true, even though he's now willing to amend the legislation, though he can't because he's already signed it into law. Yeah, we've got to, you know, we've got to make make clear exactly what that law says and it doesn't say. And as we've talked about, and we'll, we'll work on that uh, in, in our meeting tomorrow, we'll talk about that plus also Amendment 1 because people still don't know about that. And, of course, some of these education facts. But, um, you know, on the Safety Act, it's, it's still phenomenal that they're coming out and saying that, you know, uh, violent violent people will be held, um, you know, through, through various measures. But, um if you look at the law, it's really hard going forward on that on that safety act to hold any violent criminals, except for the ones that do the most egregious acts. But there's a whole bunch of violent criminals who will be released. And uh, my colleague Matt Rosenberg just did a great piece, um, you know, just saying, hey, if you want to see what's going to happen uh, in Illinois on January 1st, just look at what Cook County's been doing for the last few years, right? They've they've uh, softened bail, uh, they've cut back on bail a lot, they've put out a lot of criminals or alleged criminals on. You know, ex-felons on uh, ankle monitors. They've they've dumbed down the the crimes. 
Um, and you can see what happens. You know, you, you get soft on crime. You end up with more craziness. And you guys profile that. Your ads profile that. Uh, it's pretty easy to just say, hey, look at Cook County. Look at what they've done over the last three and four and five years and just say, here comes the same thing for Illinois. Maybe in varying levels. It depends on what, you know, what city you're in. But watch out. Look at Cook County. You know, read that piece by my colleague Matt Rosenberg on wirepoints.org, and you'll get a good feel for what's coming. Um, also, too, but since you invoked Amendment 1, I mean, just give us the, the uh, crib sheet uh, summation on Amendment 1 for yes. those of you still not familiar with it. Yeah, the, the crib sheet is Amendment 1. If you vote for it, you're giving Illinois government unions the most powers in the country by far. And those powers would extend over taxpayers, which means that they'd have more power to negotiate bigger salaries, bigger benefits, bigger, you know, bigger powers in schools. Uh, and taxpayers would be the losers that pay even higher taxes than they pay today in property taxes and other taxes. And um, they'll lose their parents' rights because the teacher unions will dominate even more than they do today. So, um, that that amendment one gives massive powers to the government unions. And, you know, if you look at Illinois, virtually every problem we have has got a, a government union behind it. So if you want to make those problems worse, vote for amendment one. But if you want to stop it, then uh, vote against it. And, and and also too, the difference between public sector unions and the private sector unions, um, because the, the portrayal and a lot of the propaganda on TV is that private sector unions would benefit. The trades would benefit. And, uh, you had a piece of wire points that debunked that. Yeah, so so this, uh, you know, Senator Villabalm, who was a sponsor of the Amendment 1, he made it very clear early on that this amendment does not cover the private sector. It does not benefit private sector workers when it comes to, to safety and, and organizing rights and things like that. It doesn't because that's covered by federal law. And yet, and yet those same proponents of the Amendment 1 keep running ads to say the private sector workers benefit and then they're just straight out lies. So what has to be clear is that this doesn't help private sector workers. It only gives more powers to the public sector unions. And, and what it does do to private sector workers is makes them pay bigger taxes for those public sector unions. He is Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints, wirepoints.com.org goes to the same place, uh, all things Illinois policy and pol- and politics related. And also, uh, tomorrow night, if you want more detail on all these issues from Ted Dabrowski and his colleagues, uh, New Turn Neighbors has this event at that uh, Wilmette Community Center that I can't pronounce. Uh, <laughs> that's 630. Go to Eventbrite, search New Turn Neighbors, and you can sign up for more Ted Dabrowski tomorrow night in Wilmette. Ted, thanks as always. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Amy. I'll see you guys in, uh, in Mallinckrott. Mallinckrott. Got Mallinckrott it, Dan. Mallinckrott Community Take Center. Take care. Got it. Okay. Yeah. He joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. A new Trafalgar poll has Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate for governor of New York, opening a slight lead on Kathy Hochul. Just less than a percentage point, but a slight lead nonetheless. Clearly, that race has tightened up. Hochul probably still the favorite a week out, but it's mm-hmm. definitely up for grabs. And now she's acting like I'm. she's the underdog now. That's her new 
No, she's the victim. She's the underdog. She's owning it. She's also acting like she cares about crime victims, which oh, is really? one of the, the lack of it is one of the reasons that she's in this dogfight with Zeldin for the governor's mansion. Hochul was on with the <clears throat> Reverend Al on MSNBC to pitch her wares and to characterize the attacks that she's enduring about the attacks that she's helped or that she's uh, compelled New Yorkers to endure. This is what she says. This is the spin that you're hearing a lot in the closing days from these defund the police, decarceration politicians who are all of a sudden in political jeopardy. Reverend Al, these are master manipulators. They have this conspiracy going all across America to try and convince people that in democratic states they're not as safe. Well, guess what? They're also not only election deniers, they're data deniers. The data shows that shootings and murders are down in our state by 15%, even in New York City, down 20% on Long Island, where Lee Zeldin comes from. And it's the, it's the, it's the Republican states where they have almost oh, yeah. no restrictions on guns. Because of the abundance of guns, people are killing each other with more frequency. The safer places are the Democratic states. So they have hijacked this issue and weaponized it against us. But I think the voters understand that there's people in office, myself, who've worked to get 8,000 guns off the street, working with our mayor, working with Mayor Adams, working with all of our local officials, our mayors. And that's how we get it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. This is this this is the line. Uh, Democrats states, red blue states are more safe than red states. Yeah. Well, that's not true. And it's also talks past the issue. Because the issue are things like the fact that uh, murders on and violent crime on New York City subways are up 25 percent. In point of fact, the former head of the MTA just got sucker punched at a sub near a subway stop. Um. And so it's not just murders and shootings, but it certainly in includes that violent crime. And what you see if you look at the highest murder per capita in urban centers around the country, the top 10 are all cities that are governed by Democrat mayors. And over the top of many of those Democrat mayors are Democrat governors who have pursued a decarceration of criminals no cash bail reforms not carefully thought out that didn't involve the stakeholders in the criminal justice system like prosecutors and judges. In point of fact, one of the high-profile cases in New York that is causing Kathy Hochul such trouble is an individual who was charged with domestic battery, was turned out, then went and killed his wife. And, of course, we are all too familiar with stories like that in Chicago. Devon Kurtz, writing in City Journal, reformers, criminal justice reformers, need to stop deluding themselves and the public that mass decarceration will, any, will be anything other than a bloodbath. Right. Don't believe your lying eyes. Believe my rhetoric. Red states and blue states and so on and so forth. What we know is what's happening in big blue cities like New York and Chicago and L.A., where you also have a mayor's race that is a dead heat, and how that radiates into the suburbs, and people are concerned about what may come, even if it hasn't come yet, particularly when you have state laws, like the no-cash-bail law in New York, and like the Pritzker purge law in Illinois, 
that demand the release, the emptying out of county jails and the release of people charged with serious forcible felonies. That's what's actually happening. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Devon Kurtz. He is the uh, Director of Public Safety Policy at the Cicero Institute. He also mentors people coming out of prison in his home state of Vermont. Devon Kurtz, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So um, your reaction to what uh, Governor Hochul had to say and my reaction to what you had to say. Sure. Well, well uh, you know, you mentioned how um, in the states with some of the highest per capita murder rates, uh, they all have Democratic mayors. Well, not only that, but, but nine of the top 15 have progressive or um, you know, somewhat progressive progressive district attorneys. Um, and that's the other missing piece here. Uh, and it's something that, that researchers are only just starting to be able to get good data on. Um, but just this year, there was a, a study of, of Philadelphia, Chicago, and Baltimore that, that all found that some progressive prosecutorial policies led to, in Philly, 80 additional murders per year. In Baltimore, 70. And in Chicago, over 100 per year. Right. I mean, it, you know, we have gone through this. There's a, an outlet in Chicago called CWB Chicago. Uh, that has, since last year, tracked this category of crime. People who are out on electronic monitoring for a forcible felony who have attempted to shoot or shot, attempted to kill or killed somebody else while out on electronic monitoring. So those preventable crimes number in the triple digits. And it's not just murders, it's not just shootings, but it's murders and shootings by people who are awaiting trial on felony charges and people scratch their heads and say what are you talking about when you are putting these people back out on the street and you're telling me your no cash bail reforms are to uh, ensure that poor nonviolent drug offenders and moms who steal formula for their babies are in county jails they're just not that's exactly right. And, and I mean, the, the piece I wrote for, for City Journal tries to break down this, this narrative of, of you know, our prisons and our jails are filled with, with people who have who have committed you know, petty drug crimes. And the same could be true of, of a lot of uh, petty property crimes. The, the reality is, is that 60 percent of people are in prison uh, for violent crimes. And overwhelmingly, um, that's sexual violence, that's homicide, um, it's aggravated assault. Um, it, it, it's, and that, that doesn't even include weapons crimes, um, which, you know, you're mentioning people out on, on bail awaiting trial. Uh, well, in, in some of our cities, they're not even going to trial because in Philadelphia, the district attorney, Larry Krasner, uh, has declined to prosecute 50 percent of felony weapons prosecutions, 50 percent fewer <laughs> felony weapons prosecutions. 70 percent decline in felony drug prosecution. These aren't just you know minor offenses. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and also and also sorry, 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 to, sorry to interrupt it. But just that, because, you know, they talk about guns and we've taken 8000 guns off the street. So you <laughs> you want to you you want to, you know, get illegal guns off the streets, but you won't prosecute people who commit crime, who shouldn't be who shouldn't have a gun for gun crimes. It, it makes no sense. Well, they would rather go after people with with legally owned firearms, apparently. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Possessed firearms. 
you know, if you actually go through the process of, of legally obtaining something, then you're the bad guy. But if you just have a felony weapons charge, then you're the victim. Yeah, I mean, it's right. The, the, all of this is upside down. I mean, I, the, it seems to me like people scratch their head. They cannot believe it. It's, it takes so much effort to get people. But no, no. Kidnapping and you're going to be turned out uh, without you're going to be turned out on your own recognizance or aggravated assault, second, uh, second degree murder. That's Pritzker's law. You're going to be turned out and, and hopefully you show up on your own good character. That's not actually happening. But it is happening. It's so difficult to believe people can't understand why anybody would do that, including a lot of prosecutors, judges and cops. And it seems to me the only logical answer is you just have a bunch of people in mayor's offices and prosecutor's office who are decarceration ideologues. And, and they are going to pursue their ideology on criminal justice, regardless of the consequences. Well, you know, the real shame and, and the main motivation for me writing this piece was that I, I had grown frustrated with how many times I, I heard this myth repeated. And, and the other big myth. In, in criminal justice is that everyone's in private prisons. Just on Sunday, I, I was listening to a presentation and, and people were getting riled up about that. It's like 4%. No, no one's in private prisons. It's very, very small. And, and even the private prisons that do exist are, are, are not you know, as, as bad as they're characterized to be. But the main thing is, is that the criminal justice reform narrative has been centered around many of these very kind of sexy fallacies. Um, and what it does is it you know, flirts with dangerous policies or just straight up enacts them. And it distracts us from, from much better policies that can help people coming out of the system get employed and help them you know, get back on their feet and get out of lives of crime. But it has to start with accepting that they did, in fact, commit crimes. <laughs> if we're not starting there, <laughs> we have a big problem. Well, how are we in you know, our prison rates compared to Europe and Asia? Sure. Yeah. Our, our, um, so we have a, a considerably higher incarceration rate. We're looking at around five to six times. Um, the incarceration rate, but we also have a substantially more violent country. And, and, and this is something that, that you'll hear, actually, on, on the campaign trail from, from some uh, progressives about how, oh, well, our incarceration system is not working because we have the highest violent crime rate in the developed world. We have that backwards. We have the highest incarceration rate because we have the highest violent crime rates in the developed world. And that you can't compare us to Japan. You, you just can't. But you can't compare the United States to the United States of history. Um, and you go back as far as 1900, and we were still at three to four times the violent crime rate of Western Europe in 1900. Um, and even then, we had much higher incarceration rates. So this is not a problem that, that is, you know, the war on drugs caused recently when we started locking up people wrongfully. Uh, that's just false. We've, we've always had, you know, a, a Wild West country with high rates of violence. Um, with, with far more diversity than our peers in, in uh, Far East Asia and in Western Europe. And, and it's, and, you know, that, that our criminal justice system has to respond appropriately. And, and historically, it's, it's responded quite commensurately. Um, recently, you know, that, that, that number has, has um, increased dramatically. But at the same time, America has gotten a lot safer. You write in your piece in City of Journal, reformers' priorities need to account for violent crime and create workable solutions for making prisons better rather than continuing to indulge the dangerous fantasy of abolition. Uh, workable solutions. So what, what, give us some examples of the things that we should be talking about when it comes to improving our criminal justice system. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that 
a lot of the work that we we do at Cicero, what we kind of imagine for the criminal justice system, is one where where from prisons to probation and parole departments uh, to the nonprofits that are are getting um, either federal or, or state funds to work with people uh, in the correctional system, or you know, are, are just um, you know, in any way receiving public money. All these institutions are, are currently um, they have no incentive to improve. Now it's it, it's just chance that someone of, of goodwill, you know, takes their job considerably seriously and, and really goes above and beyond uh, and is able to push back, you know, through all of the bureaucracy we've created to actually make an impact on people's lives. But the reality is, is that, that these are government bureaucracies that are failing to get us the outcomes that we want to see. Uh, and that starts with changing the financial incentives. And that, that's not, <laughs> it's not a really attractive policy, but it's one that could have the most impact. And that's because you need prisons, you need you know the staff, you need departments to be rewarded for merit. You need them to be rewarded for making an impact on people's lives, for changing uh, the trajectory of, of you know someone who is a criminal today, but could be you know a, a, a hardworking, law-abiding person tomorrow. That takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of attention. We have we have the facilities, we have the people, we just aren't rewarding them for doing what we want to see. Right, and and uh, you uh, mentioned that um, you mentor people coming out of prison uh, where you live, and we've talked to uh, ex-cons uh, who have created programs for ex-offenders to reduce re- recidivism, and there are examples around the country that work. We often point out John Ponder in Clark County, Nevada, his Hope for Prisoners program. We talked to uh, a guy who's an ex-con, now a minister, who's got a program in the state of Georgia that has shown, uh, you know, great results in terms of really minimizing recidivism rates, you know, by, you know, factors of five and six and 10 in John Ponder's case. And so it's not like we're oblivious to programs that help to uh, assimilate people who are going to get out of jail into living peaceful lives, putting a life of crime behind them, or anybody's opposed to that, happy to have that conversation. But it's just very difficult to have that conversation about programs to scale for ex-offenders when you're not willing to hold offenders responsible, punish them so that they uh, are processed through to a, to a program like Hope for Prisoners when they get out. Absolutely. And that's the problem with, with mass decarceration, as I uh, phrased it in, in my piece. And, and it's you you just can't begin from a place of, you know, no prisons, no one, you know, gets, goes into custody. And if we just freeze everything where it is and everyone stays out, then it'd be, you know, it would be so, oh, so much better. It, it, it's delusional. It's delusional, dangerous. Um, and, it, and it doesn't help the reform narrative. And, and, and I, I, I believe in justice reform. My definition of reform is, is not prison abolition. Uh, that's for sure. Um, but I believe in helping people, and, and I come to that from my faith. As you pointed out, so many examples, some of the, the biggest success stories in, in, in helping people in the criminal justice system come from people of faith. Now, I think it's kind of inter- you know a little. Uh, it, it's interesting that, that so many of the prison abolitionists, so many of the people who are the most vocal voices in the reform movement, are not are not people of faith, and are instead approaching it from some sort of you know vague justice lens. Uh, that's ill-defined and, and, and is not really about redemption, not about accountability, not about turning around individuals, but is instead just getting lost in these 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 systems, 
vaguely defined systems. <laughs> uh, and it's hard for people to relate to, and, it, and it ultimately uh, what we're seeing now in, in, in this election cycle, and we'll see it for years to come, is that uh, Americans are sick of it. Americans don't want to hear about that. They want to hear about how um, you know, we're actually intervening in people's lives, not just letting them out. Yeah, that uh, faith piece is very instructive, isn't it? Uh, Devon Kurtz is the director of public safety policy at the Cicero Institute. He mentors people coming out of prison in his home state of Vermont as well. Devon Kurtz, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. You know what's interesting about these suburban congressional races? Three in particular, uh, Pecow versus Caston, Grider versus Underwood, and Lauf versus Foster. People forget that these are redrawn districts. And so the incumbents have sizable portions of their constituency that don't know them, oh. that haven't voted for them before because this is the new map. So the district boundaries are new. So the electorate is new substantially. And so the advantage of incumbency is diminished a bit because those incumbents need to inter- introduce themselves to a whole new swath of voters just like the challengers do. And those three races I mentioned, as I understand it, are all right now statistical dead heats. And all three would be Republican pickups for the Republican challengers to those Democrat socialist incumbents. Very interesting what's happening there. And I think perhaps maybe the great cartographers of the Democrat Socialist Party in Illinois will have been found to have been a bit too aggressive, a bit too presumptuous in what they thought the suburbs would do in reaction to the terrible public policies they have pursued both at the state and federal level. One of those races I just mentioned, Catalina Lauf, she's the Republican nominee for Congress. She's running against Bill Foster, the incumbent. She joins us now for her closing argument. Catalina, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, and just to to uh, buttress my point, Kevin McCarthy is coming in for Keith Peacow this week. Uh, I saw that Rand Paul sent out a missive on your behalf. You obviously had Tulsi Gabbard in yesterday for Darren Bailey. So it, it seems like there's at least a decent possibility the worm is turning in the suburbs. What do you think? I will tell you the momentum and the energy is on our side. We have been receiving hundreds of yard signups, people who want to volunteer, People who have never been involved in politics are getting involved because they are so fed up with what is not only happening here in the state, but also federally. And they know that the three incumbents that you mentioned are directly responsible for things like high grocery bills, high gas prices, billions of dollars in spending going to foreign aid. You know, this is ridiculous. And I'm so proud to be uh, kind of this new wave of, of candidates here that are 
really running on on our merit in terms of, look, we want to support small business owners. We want to support the American workforce. We want to make things better, make sure people have more money in their pocketbooks. You know, things that we, that for a long time, these last two years have been forgotten. And, and people will remember not only what happened here in Illinois with the unconstitutional lockdowns, the businesses being closed, you know, the government trying to force itself upon us in every in every aspect, whether, again, it's shutting down your businesses or telling you where if you can work or not. I mean, this is ridiculous. And you're going to see that mandate here coming up on November 8th because we are so determined to flip this house, flip this these seats here in Illinois so that Illinoisans do not feel forgotten anymore. Now, have you debated Bill Foster or did you offer to debate him? We did multiple times. Okay. Uh, he, uh, we offered multiple times. He refuses to debate me. And the only time we were able to get a, a little bit of a debate in was during a, a, an event with seniors down in the Plainfield area. And let me tell you, Bill Foster told a room of our senior citizens that people should be uh, required to help the millennials in student debt forgiveness. And it's our <laughs> job to help them. And let me tell you, every single one of those seniors, everybody in that room was so uh, disgusted by his comments, uh, considering how bad the economy is right now. Our seniors are, are one of the uh, hurting the most right now in terms of the high, uh, high grocery bills, high gas prices. Everybody is hurting right now. And to have an elitist career politician like Bill Foster tell you that we want to keep spending your money and raising your taxes to, to help you know, people who could work for themselves. Uh, it was so uh, so out of touch, and that's exactly why we're so confident heading into the election because people are sick and tired of these career politicians. Bill Foster's backed by Mike Madigan, and he's the typical de- Democrat, corrupt Chicago machine, and they are sick and tired. It's not about Republican or Democrat anymore. This is about bringing in new leadership who wants to fight for the people, and yeah. I'm confident that we've created that. You know, speaking of uh, seniors, a, a forgotten group when we talk about lockdowns, but seniors like at a senior center at a nursing home who were essentially locked down and prevented from seeing their loved ones, seniors that had to die alone without uh, family members allowed to be you know, present, uh, peering through the window at them while they pass on. Pretty, pretty grotesque stuff. I'm sure that's top of mind for a lot of those seniors, too. Oh, absolutely. Or even the were um, needed health care or needed help during that time, but because doctor's offices were closed yeah. and because, you know, lo- uh, senior loneliness is actually one of the top issues uh, that we're seeing in the senior community, but nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about the social and uh, human uh, issue that happened, impact that happened during the lockdowns. And you see it even from our little kids, uh, kids who were in school. You know, there was a massive cost all of that and that was government who did it so it wasn't just economic uh, from an economic perspective it was also social and we cannot forget uh, those years and and that time that government overreached us all it was just criminal and back to inflation though when the elderly people they're on fixed incomes so any inflation I mean that the money's not there no Absolutely not. And again, it is a government-created problem. Look at the way that they continue to spend. The Inflation Reduction Act did absolutely nothing to reduce inflation. Look at the billions of dollars of 
spending that they're they're sending in foreign aid. People here back home are suffering, period. And what are your elected officials doing about it? Absolutely nothing. They continue to spend your taxpayer money, and it's time that we fight back. You know, this is our state. This is our country. We are a self-governed people. And unless we get out and vote and vote and retire these people out who have been uh, grossly taking advantage of us for the last decade decades uh we we are we are able to retire them but the only way to do that is by getting involved voting taking your family and friends out uh to the polling booths making sure that our voices are heard you know the other thing too with these uh, candidates yourself included sort of a, a new energy you've got uh, younger candidates that you know you're young at least to amy uh, and and Scott, I'm sure you appreciate that. Yeah, and you. and uh, Scott, you know, so you're you're very young. Scott Ryder, he's a little bit older than you, but he's a young candidate. Keith Peacock's a little bit older than that, but he's still a relatively young candidate. Younger candidates, new candidates, holding themselves out for uh, for office and and faring well to this point, and um, and maybe a new energy in the GOP here. Absolutely, and it's it, not only here in, in Illinois. But also federally, as you mentioned, Dan, because, you know, this new wave are all outsiders. You know, we have not. I work in the private sector. Uh, candidates across the country, you see those girls down at the border. We are everyday people that have just been fed up and we're motivated Americans now to defend our districts, to flip these seats back and, and bring impactful change. And that's just something, you know, I always say this is why we need term limits on both. It doesn't matter, Republican or Democrat, we need term limits because we need outsiders who are, are fresh faces and new perspectives and can solve modern day challenges. But most importantly, they care. You know, we all fiercely care about the issues that are happening in our districts. We're out there every single day. We're putting in the work. We're listening to our future constituents. And we have had that leadership gap, that servant leadership gap, for such a long time in this country. And we must remember what our founders wanted in their representatives. It was everyday people who went and served. They did their time, but they did it uh, and because they were passionate and they loved the values of this country. And that's what we need to go back to. We need to remind the people who's in charge. And it's you. You, the people, have the power. And, and the elected officials need to remember that. You, you mentioned uh, the border, and uh, you were mentioning you were sort of referencing Myra Flores, among others, uh, who was a surprise winner down at, at, in, a, in a border district in Texas. Yeah, how, how important is that issue as you traverse the campaign trail? Is that an issue that voters are talking to you about, about the need to secure the border, about the need to bring law and order to Chicagoland, but also, by extension, uh, bring security, law and order to the border. Absolutely. It is one of the top issues. And of course, it's been uh, long forgotten. It's not really spoken about in the media. Uh, you know, even though Illinois is not a border state, you know, we're all border states because we are suffering the impact of what happens when you have a crisis at the border. When there's no enforcement, when there's lawlessness, that creates this labor, drug, sex trafficking, the fentanyl epidemic that's happening in our country. All of that is a direct uh, result of the lawlessness and the lack of enforcement at the border. And we have to have lions in Congress who are not afraid to talk about immigration reform. And that's why you know I'm so encouraged by a lot of these uh, Hispanic, Latina candidates across the board because 
what are they going to say? You know, in AOC, all she talks about is that, you know, Republicans are racist, that all this, if we want to close the border. Well, you have women here who have understood what it takes to come here. Our families came here the right way. We, we respect law and order. And it's time that we talk about immigration reform. We, we make sure the border is safe and secure, but also talk about in a thoughtful way. It has never been brought up by, from a bipartisan perspective. It has not been done before. And I'm so encouraged that we're actually going to make inroads when it comes to the border and it comes when it comes to immigration reform because of this new class. So uh, what does it take for you to bring it home in the next week? I, I need everybody who is listening here right now to tell your family, your friends, get them to the polls, you know, midterm elections, we're, we're already seeing a lot of energy, but we need to bring it home. And the only way to do that is by if you get involved, you vote. And, you know, we, we really the only way we do this is if everybody gets out and votes. You know, midterm elections, again, uh, we see a little less of a turnout than in presidential years. But I'm confident that this year people are so fed up that they're going to get out there. So if you all can do your job, get your friends and family to the polls, uh, you know, Share about the candidates that you like in your district. I'm at CatalinaForCongress.com, Catalina Lauf on all social media platforms. But you all can bring it home for us. We've gotten this far. We are all so confident. We feel the energy. We feel the momentum. And please bring it home for us by voting. All right. She is Catalina Lauf. She's the Republican nominee running against Bill Foster in the Western Burbs. CatalinaForCongress.com is the website, as you heard. Catalina, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, and good luck. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.